This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 319 of the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast. I'm in Boulder, Colorado, not too far, about an hour away from my home in Fort Collins uh, at a brewery that actually plays a small part in, in the historical story of craft beer and brewing. Joining me here is Alex Meyer, head brewer of Upslope Brewing. We're, uh, welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thanks, Jamie. Appreciate it. The very earliest days of craft beer and brewing, my my business partner, John Bolton, lived down here in, uh, in Boulder, a uh, uh, neighborhood uh, right around the corner from this Lee Hill tap room that we're in now, the original brewery and tap room for Upslope. And, uh, you know, I, I have some fond memories of concocting the idea for our business while sitting in this tap room um, and having some conversations with John about it. And so it's kind of fun now, 10 years after we like really... 10 years to the month it's uh it's september now and uh that was the month that we incorporated 10 exactly 10 years ago incorporated uh unfiltered media to, to publish craft beer and brewing and so here we are 10 years later at one of the spots where we you know we uh were engaged in those early conversations not that i'm getting nostalgic <laughs> maybe i am maybe i am anyway thanks for joining me if i think about upslope i think about craft lager yeah. yeah, this was uh, Upslope was one of these brewer was was one of the very few breweries that 10 years ago as we were you know planning this that uh, was making and putting a lot of weight behind craft lager carving out a space for that uh, when a lot of other craft brewers were going in a completely different direction uh, of course you know as recently as 2019 you won a silver medal at GBF for that same craft lager it's uh, it's still going strong in the international pilsner category still going strong uh, you all are making lots more lagers now we're drinking a Japanese uh, style rice lager right now yep. um, you all send plenty our way in that lager space you guys are experimenting there uh, of course surrounding us here in the Lee Hill uh, Brewery are a bunch of the special projects, the one-off beers, the barrel-aged beers, the uh, wild and sour beers, um, some of the more interesting projects that you all engage in. We're going to talk about that. And then, uh, you know, you also make some hard seltzers that are pretty damn good. Uh, so, I don't know, maybe maybe we'll talk about hard seltzer. I don't know. Maybe we won't. We'll see where the conversation goes. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. We're going to talk about all of these things over the course of this episode, but first, G&D Chillers, the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, are proud of the cool partnerships they've built over the past 30 years. G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24-7 service and support. Want to maximize efficiency in your chiller? G&D's micro-channel condensers are designed for less power draw. Their lighter weight and more compact design uses up to 70% less refrigerant, which means a lower GWP and lower operating costs. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, this episode is sponsored by BSG Distributors of Gambrinus Malting, Canada's original small-batch artisanal malt house. Located in Armstrong, BC, Gambrinus Malting combines European-influenced malting practices with the finest barley, wheat, and rye to produce some of the finest Canadian malts available. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com slash gambrinus to explore their full line of traditionally crafted malts and infuse your next brew with the character of the Okanagan Valley and Monashi Range. And is your brewery making its own ciders, seltzers, and other beverages beyond beer? If you need a central source for fruit flavor, Old Orchard has you covered. Old Orchard supplies flavored craft juice concentrate blends to beverage brands for the production of beer, cider, seltzer, wine, spirits, kombucha, and more. Flavor your lineup and streamline your sourcing by heading to oldorchard.com slash brewer. So Alex, let's start off with a little bit of history. What's your history look like uh, in brewing? And uh, and then we can talk a little bit about Upslope's uh, history now, which you know dates back. It's it's fourteen ish. We're coming up on fifteen, 15 years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. So you know, I started in the industry about ten years ago. Um, I was going to CU Boulder, studied mechanical engineering there. Was looking for jobs in the traditional fields there, and not really enjoying it, but. Um, Got really into beer while I was in Boulder. It happens. Yep. And uh, got a job at Upslope on the packaging side. So that's, you know, pretty directly in line with mechanical stuff there. But it still had a passion for making beer and 
eventually made that switch over to the brewing side, um, you know, shift brewing over there. Um, and then coming back to Lee Hill, when I say over there, that's Flatiron Park, our production facility that was opened about 10 years ago. Um, uh, but yeah, came back to Lee Hill, started doing more of that R&D kind of barrel aged stuff, you know, all that fun stuff you get to do. Um, and then those beers that always get sent to me in like, uh, uh, stovepipe cans around the holidays. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, and then about two years ago, moving back primarily to Flatiron Park in the head brewer role. So, I've, you know, done a so lot of a different full sides. brewing career yeah. here at Upslope. Yeah. So I've been yeah, here for about awesome. a decade now. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, definitely learned a lot. It's and, somewhat unusual. In yeah. The brewing world. Yep. So, you know, kind of growing with the craft beer industry as well. And, um, you know, Upslope was about five years old and had just opened the new facility when I started on. So it was kind of that that upward trajectory in, you know, 2013, 2014. Um, and seeing the market mature a lot and, um, you know, having to innovate. Um, so that was part of the fun of coming back here and doing the R and D stuff. But, um, yeah, that's kind of my role at Upslope, just, you know, learning a lot about each side of production. When the founders of Upslope started the brewery, what, uh, you know, what was the kind of broad goal and vision as it's, uh, as it's been communicated to, to you and all the teams here at, uh, at Upslope? Yeah. I mean, that was like 15 years ago. So 2008, kind of a tough time out there, right? We're in the great recession. They're looking to make, um, you know, a craft brewery that makes approachable beers. Um, we're very like outdoor, um, oriented around here. So something that you're going to have after your mountain bike ride or, you know, climbing, whatever that is. So really approachable beers that, um, you don't have to think too much about if you don't want to, but then there's the other side of it where, we're still experimenting and we're making new beers all the time. You know, at Lee Hill, we put out probably close to a hundred different beers a year. Um, so, you know, working on different barrel age projects or a new lager that's coming down the pipeline, IPAs, whatever it is. So I think the vision for Upslope was to, yeah, make good beer that you could take with you outside, but um, also continue to innovate and stay relevant. So. Um, talk to me about, let's talk, like kick things off talking about craft lager. Sure. You know, I'm curious about that. Um, you know, because craft lager and, and literally the beer is just called craft lager. Yeah. Um, you know, because that's such a, a linchpin now, you know, for upslope, what was, uh, you, you know, as you, obviously you were here when the beer was developed, you know, but, uh, I imagine that that story and the lore has been passed down. And of course you've been tasked with, uh, maintaining, uh, you know, that beer. What was the idea behind it? What, uh, you know, how do you want it to convey now? Um, and, uh, you know, what are some of the general parameters and ideas behind the beer? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I mentioned one of the founders from Argentina's name's Danny Page, um, He's still here. Obviously, he's my boss. And he developed that as the first head brewer at Upslope. Um, I think he has a unique position of being from another country outside of this market and being like, why wouldn't we do this? Where, you know, at the time, a lot of craft brewers were shying away from making lagers because it was kind of what the macro brewers are doing and they were rejecting sure, that. Sure. But he was like, you know, a lot of people like this style. We're going to make our own. Um, and, you know, using some kind of new methods for making lagers, you know, I, I have deep respect for traditional lager methods and we still do a lot of lagers that way, especially on a smaller scale, but it was trying to figure out a way that we could make these beers pretty quickly, especially when we're growing a lot and do not have the tank residency times that you would traditionally need. So I think the idea was just trying to make a really approachable beer that, you know, the, even if you weren't a craft beer drinker, you might still be into that. And I think a lot of people really appreciated that with craft lager. And as it's kind of grown over the years, it's, you know, like I said, I'm not, I don't think craft lager is trying to be the triple decocted Pilsner of the world. It's trying to fill a space that's easy drinking and you want to take it fly fishing. You know, you want to, it's just a, an easy beer that's consistent. And I think, you know, people really appreciate that. Um, you know, we, we, we're still doing traditional beers. I love all of that, but trying to find a way to, uh, make a beer that is our, it's our best selling beer. So, you know, how can we make a lot of it? You know, we can't, 
leave it in the tank for months at a time. So um, it's, it's always been about, um, I think, just making something. It, it's funny that it's now maybe the status quo, but it kind of went against the grain a little bit initially and people sort of shunned it. But I think sticking to that has proven very fruitful. What are what are some of the parameters around it? You yeah. know, it's not the palest of loggers. No. It's not the crispest of loggers. Yeah. That's 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 not its goal. But you know, I mean, obviously, it's well structured. Um, it has a balanced flavor. Mm-hmm. It's not meant to be. The, you know, it. I wouldn't describe it as either German or Czech. It is definitely yeah. kind of its own you know, approach to lager beer. Sure. Are there some kind of broad parameters that you can share around it? And uh, in terms of, you know, where you all find some of, you know, cause obviously we're dealing with uh, you know, a lager here, you've got a f- small number of levers that you can pull sure. t- relative to, you know, malt choice, hop choice, and then some, you know, basic fermentation uh, and gravity choices to, to create the kind of, you know, feel and flavor that you're looking for in the beer. Yeah. You know, how do you go about that? And what are some, you know, what are some of the decisions that are made in that beer, you know, that help accomplish, you know, some of the design goals? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to have a lean malt body to it, but we're not adding adjuncts like rice or corn to it to really lighten it up. So you're really just leaning on some pale two row, right? And then two row and not Pilsner malt. Two row and not Pilsner malt. Um, Why, why not? Well, you know, some of it has to do with the feasibility of getting bulk uh, malt. And, you know, if you did all Pilsner, then you've got that in all your beers. Right. Um, I think another thing from my perspective, if, you know, if I was going to steer it in another direction, I would probably still keep it at two row is that, you know, when we're up here at elevation, you have a really pale base malt like that. You're going to have a bit more DMS unless you can boil that for a long time. And like I said, we've, we got to make a lot of this. So. You know, it's it's funny to call it kind of industrialized, but it's it's fit for that. Um, I I think you get a little more complexity from single infusion um, mashing that way too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we were decocting or doing some other methods with like a really nice pilsner malt, sure that'd be awesome. Um, another thing I've you know been really tasked with as a head brewer is like it's great to use all the best malts that you want, but you, you know, it might not be cost effective. So it's a balance of everything, right? It's like making the best beer you can. That's still worth making, um, from a sales standpoint, um, being able to deliver it to consumers at a price point that they can afford and buy often is also, I mean, it is an important piece of this too, you know? And, you know, like I said earlier, I definitely respect the, like, I'm going to make this beer as awesome as I can with all the choicest malts and everything. And we do that. Um, but for this beer, it's like, you know, let's, let's consider all these parameters here. Um, and then, you know, just, so keeping it really lean there without adjunct. So it's all malt. Um, but then, you know, the, the hop choice is, is pretty crucial too, cause we're, we're really just hitting it with a whirlpool addition. So mm. it's not heavy handed, you know, we're not getting to the level of like a German Pilsner or an even Italian Pilsner that's dry hopped or something right. like that. But, you know, we have a sizable addition in the Whirlpool to have some hop expression there. Um, Why the Whirlpool and not, uh, you know, yeah. earlier on in the process? I think it's just, you know, some of this has been like how it's always been made. But sure. I, I continue to use that method mainly because like, you know, we're we're at the point I mean, where... You could argue that you can hit similar bitterness numbers and because it's a log, you're not... Yeah. Your goal isn't necessarily a lot of aroma either. Yeah. I think that's just the way that we like that hot side character yeah. to come through. I, you know, there's a lot of loggers where I'll do like a 40 minute edition of sure, and something sure. like that. But this one we're, we're using like a, you know, an alpha extract for most bitterness and then hitting it with some nice hops in the whirlpool. That was originally some Czech sauce. Um, nowadays that's, we've moved away from that. Hmm. And a lot of that was a conscious decision with dec- declining quality we were seeing oh, and wow. wanting to s- save our Czech saws for the Czech Pilsners we were making and stuff. So we're actually using a Sterling hop, which mm. is um, grown in um, in Oregon. And that's very similar to some of those Noble varieties, but we're seeing the qualities a lot better because it's not, you know, shipped across the ocean in a compacted bale. It's a lot fresher. Yeah. Um, so we've switched to Sterling and really like that change. Um, but yeah, then other than that, it's just, uh, you know, as clean a yeast profile as you can get. There's some how, intricacies. How, what, is there of, an IBU goal for this, or you know, if I had to guess, it's probably about 15 or okay. something like that. So, so it's it's pretty low. 
Um, but you know, that kind of, I'm sure that fluctuates with the different alpha acids we're getting in, in those sterlings. Um, and then of course doing it through the whirlpool, it's, uh, you know, it's probably lending that softer, less isomerized bitterness, uh, a little less of that cooked. Yeah. You know, and you know, IBU will only tell you so much, right? So it's kind of like if we're tasting, you know, that's why sensory is really important. If we're sure. tasting an increased bitterness, the IBUs might be showing the same thing, but it's like, okay, let's back off a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, you know, and there's some some parts of the, the fermentation character that you're, are characteristic to that yeast. So I would say just overall, it should be, um, it, like you said, it's not too light, but yeah. it's, it's still pretty, uh, balanced and easy drinking. You're not, those hops aren't hitting you over the head. Um, but it's just nice and easy. There's a little white wheat in there. I forgot to say that that gives oh, it, okay. you know, that helps a little, the, um, Add some foam body. stability yeah. and some body. Yeah. But otherwise, like it's really a very simple beer and that's where it comes down to like making it all the time and getting Is it malted wheat or unmalted? it's malted wheat. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to talk about fermentation. Obviously, sure. you know, sulfur, like a high sulfur character is, is not necessarily the goal in this either. I'm curious how you manage that with all of this, uh, you know, two road add this kind of softer lager character. Before we do that, AccuBrew now monitors specific gravity to ensure consistent results and detect problems before they ruin a batch. The AccuBrew system is designed to give you unprecedented insight into the fermentation process, monitor gravity, fermentation activity, clarity, and temperature, schedule reminders, and receive alerts anywhere, anytime. AccuBrew's CIP-ready device is designed to stay out of your way. Uh, They know your time and space is precious, and they take up as little of both as possible. No more samples, no cleaning, and no calibration. Set it and forget it. To learn more about AccuBrew, head on over to AccuBrew.io. Also, ProBrew is excited to announce that they're currently featuring short lead times between two and four weeks for their in-stock ProFill rotary can fillers. These can fillers run at speeds between 100 and 600 plus cans per minute while achieving precise and consistent filling volumes not achievable by most inline and mobile fillers. For more information, fill out their contact form on www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. ProBrew, brew your beer. And elevate your brewing game with RMS Roller Grinder. Their industry-leading mills deliver optimal grind consistency, unlocking the full potential of your grain. Say goodbye to uneven grinds and hello to exceptional flavor extraction. Brewpub or production facility, RMS has the expertise in grain handling equipment to meet your needs. Visit rmsroller-grinder.com to discover how RMS can transform your brewing experience. Unleash the full potential of your grains with RMS Roller Grinder, the trusted choice of brewers worldwide. So let's talk about fermentation yeah. and craft lager. How, how do you do it? Uh, what's, what's the process behind it? Uh, obviously, you've mentioned fast. Yeah. You know, so in order to get a reasonably dry beer, uh, you know, I don't know what your finishing gravity is on this, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, with two row and a, a decent mash, you can get a pretty full attenuation. Uh, you know, how, how do you proceed through that? I mean, you know, with, with any lager brewing, you're going to want a higher pitch rate. So starting with the cell load you need, but, um, you know, it's the yeast strain we're using. I think it was maybe a little hush hush, but I'm not, I don't care anymore about that, <laughs> but we we're using a high pressure lager strain that's become more oh, popular these days. Okay. Okay. Um, and you know what that does this, this strain can ferment at about 15 PSI okay. and that keeps esters down. And so you're allowed, you, you can ferment much warmer than you would with a traditional strain. Um, so that's very different than when Wish we're I had this. We were just writing about uh, pressure fermentation for the okay. brewing industry guide yeah. and searching for uh, some sources on this. Man, <laughs> if I had only known, yeah. if I'd only known. Um, interesting. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's, you know, key to fermenting quickly, right? Because you, you, you let you the fermentation a- build its own pressure then uh, as it starts fermenting and then leave it there? It, essentially, yeah. yeah. I mean, it'll build it pretty quickly yeah. as, as it's going. Um you know, and this is very different from when we're making some stuff on a smaller scale and we're using traditional strains that you definitely don't want to do that to because right. they are not adapted to that pressure. Um, but yeah, it, it keeps also mean a warmer down. fermentation temperature then too, or yeah, it is. And it, it's like, you know, maybe what cold IPA brewers say they ferment at now and they're fermenting warm and we're like, well, right. it's kind of the normal one, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's more like in the low sixties rather yeah. than in the fifties or lower even. 
Um, so that will speed up your fermentation. Um, one thing that you do need to be mindful of with that is sulfur compounds. I think you mentioned that yeah. earlier. Um, so you're blowing off a lot of hydrogen sulfide um, in a lager fermentation like that. And if you're capping it under pressure, um, it's harder for some of that to volatilize. So you need to make sure you have a vigorous fermentation and then still give it some time for cold conditioning. I know I'm saying you can do it quickly, but it does need some some lagering, just not as long as you would traditionally do. Do you um, do anything you know while it's still in that fermentation tank, whether it's, you know, bubbling or bursting you know co2 through the tank or or you know temporarily depressurizing and repressurizing nope just okay. let it do its thing yeah it i mean that yeast is really adapted to that high pressure yeah. so um, that also helps it with flocculation so yeah. we need to crop yeast off of that um, quite a bit so with that pressure when it's done it's done and we can get a good crop off of the tank um so yeah it's just like Making sure you've got healthy yeast, obviously. I'm sure everyone harps on that, but yeah. um, getting your cell load right. Um, and then, you know, with uh, craft lager being all malt, that helps a lot because you've got enough free amino nitrogen in there. And um, if you, you're deficient in that, that's where you can get some really bad sulfur problems. So, you know, when we're making stuff with more adjuncts, you might need to supplement that in another form. Interesting. Is there anything else to kind of maintain that yeast health? through this, you know, kind of well, high pressure environment? For sure. I mean, you want to crop that yeast as soon as you can yeah. because it's not a good, you know, we are using cylinder conical vessels. So right. you still, you already have a lot of hydrostatic pressure at the bottom of the tank there. So you want to get that yeast off as soon as you can. Um, we don't have, you know, a way to um, crop that and, or, or we're not propping up yeast in another vessel. So we're kind of doing a, a cone to cone type yeah. method. So you don't want to leave it on there too long because like once it's done, it can be very stressed out under that amount of pressure. Um, so, yeah, the key is to definitely take it off as soon as it's ready um, so that you can keep that going into subsequent generations. How do you measure when it's ready? You know, I mean, because I imagine the fermentation on this is much quicker than a yeah. normal lager fermentation. And at mm -hmm. that point, you know, even missing it by one day can be pretty significant in yeah. terms of... Uh, uh, excessive contact time. You know, it's just like anything with experience, you kind of know when that sweet spot is. Um, we're generally seeing after a couple weeks, um, it'll start to flocculate out. Um, you want to make sure your solids are high enough for the next pitch, but um, that's when the, you know, that kind of intersection of viability and percent solids is where you want it. So I'd say it's an experience thing. Um, knowing when we can crop it, like, cause I got to build that schedule out and make sure it's <laughs> lined up for the next brew. But, right. um, you know, and then it's just a standard lab analysis of, you know, looking at your viability and cell count and all that. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, it's inherently a stressful environment for yeast, even one that's adapted to yeah. it. So it's just trying to get it in and out as, as quick as we can pretty much. Was this the, you're using this process in 2019 with that silver metal winning? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Pressure fermentation. Yeah. Silver metal and, uh, you know, <laughs> GABF Pilsner, that yeah. international Pilsner. Interesting. Yeah. Are there any, uh, any concerns, uh, you know, after that point in terms of, uh, like how long then do you, after for primary fermentation is done, do you let it sit in condition or lager? Yeah. I mean, you want a few weeks if you can. Sure. Um, sure. But that's you know, sometimes you need to do a little earlier. Sure. Um, you know, you're, you're giving it at least a week or two, um, which is pretty standard for ales, but you know, with this kind of lager, right. um, kind of what we found also is if you can step it down, like you might not crash it down to freezing right away, but maybe down to more of what we call a cellar temp, which is, sorry, I talk in Celsius, it's five C it's maybe like 40 Fahrenheit. Um, and, and that'll help that yeast flocculate a bit so you can remove it and then go into more of a traditional lagering temperature and cold conditioning that's closer to freezing. Um, so yeah, as long as you get a, a week or two, it's usually pretty good. Um, I think that, you know, we, if we just hit all of our, our benchmarks that we've done this so much that it, it generally behaves, but there's some times where you definitely need to kind of monitor things and, and try to make some tweaks to, you know, accommodate the yeast and, and how it's fermenting. So. Sure. It's interesting from a, a sensory standpoint, mm -hmm. how do you all describe the, the flavor then of craft lager? 
yeah. when all when all is said and brewed. Yeah. That's a good question. Like you have to have a standard for this, right? Like yeah, what is the beer sure. and what are we trying to hit? Yeah. I mean, there there's certainly more yeast character from this fermentation than when we make, you know, some of these more traditional lager brewing methods. Like right. those are generally very neutral. Um, with craft lager, there is always a touch of, of sulfur, but for me, it's at, at the, the level great. that's, yeah. <laughs> well, you need, you need the right amount, right? Sure, when it gets, sure. when it gets too high, that's, that's yeah, not good. Sure. Um, but you know, there's a touch of that. There is, I, I don't know if it's quite an ester, but it's got this light fruitiness to it. I would describe it kind of like how Kolsch can be, yeah. um, where it's like, okay, this is clean, but it's got something going on there. So it adds com some complexity. It's just, it's not um, like very clean and neutral. It's got something else going on. Um, it's kind of hard to describe, but when you, you know, taste it multiple times a week for years, you're like, that's that, you know? So you know what's going on there. And, and then also like how the malt presents itself. So you want the right level of attenuation. You don't want to over attenuate, even though I really like dry lagers, you want a little malt backbone there. Yeah. Um, and you know, what's just the, the, what do you really, what do you strive for in finishing gravity? We're generally about to Play-Doh there. Okay. Um, so, you know, not nothing crazy, yeah. but it's still, you know, it's not really sweet or anything. Right. Um, but the best batches, you know, are when you've got that balance of everything where it's the hops and, you know, every, the fermentation character is kind of synergistic with that malt. Like, like I think the um, sulfur can kind of complement that malt a little bit. But like I said, it has to be very light because... You know, some people it's a are great very sensitive. Yeah, it's yeah. a great structuring element yeah. if you're not structuring with bitterness. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, again, keeps it from just feeling flat, yeah. in the, you know, in the, the mouth. It's such a interesting kind of like aroma character that actually gives you the idea of structure without that kind of bitter flavor. Yeah. Um, we shouldn't be as afraid of, of sulfur <laughs> as, uh, as some I mean, people are. You know, it's it's a part of fermentation. But this I, is how yeast cells, yeah. you know, redox balance. This is yeah. part of it. So as uh, Stan Hieronymus once said to me, it's like that perfect match, the perfect strike of, of a match. You yeah. know? Um, uh, I love it. Let's talk about some of the other lagers that you all cool. grew before we do that. Oh, you like wildly aromatic IPAs and tropical lagers. Good thing. Omega designed thialized yeast for just that reason. Thialized yeast are a new tool for brewers to bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. And wait, there's more. Omega Yeast makes yeast to order with a consistent one-week lead time, ensuring peak freshness and reliability. Also, sustainability doesn't have to cost you more. Try Robert's Polypro's multi-pack can handles designed for sustainability and for cost savings. Grip pack rings are biodegradable and average five cents per unit. Craft pack carriers are recyclable and designed with 30% less plastic. Plus you can save up to 25% on costs. Enjoy easy application with inline applicators and 24 seven support. It's easy to go green with these multi-pack handles. Visit go.robertspolypro.com slash cbbpod to request free samples and start saving today. And ABS Commercial has been a full-service brewery outfitter for over 10 years. They're proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts to brewers across the country, as well as equipment for distilling, cider making, wine making, and more. They know the ins and outs of the brewing and installation process and can design the perfect setup for you, whether you're just starting out or looking to expand. Contact them today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your customized brewery needs. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. So, uh, so yeah, talk to me about uh, some of the lagers you might make in more traditional ways. Um, some regularly find their way into your lineup or on, at least on a seasonal basis. Um, it seems like you, you guys have definitely stretched out in that regard. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I mentioned earlier, I was doing the R and D work over here for a number of years and that's kind of when I fell in love with lagers. So I was making a lot of those. And I think some of my favorite are like Munich Hellas, um, Czech dark lager. Those are, two awesome ones there. Um, but you know, the difference there being maybe more complex mashing methods, trying to coax a little flavor out of these more premium Pilsner malts. Um, you guys decoct over here on this system. I call it kind of a modified decoction. We yeah. don't have a, you know, the system set up to truly pump the mash over and decoct it, but I can decoct wort over, um, and kind of hit different, um, mash rests and, 
you know, this is a direct fire kettle over here. So this thing was put together back in 2008 when they're scrapping things together and it's still kicking. And um, one thing I do like about the direct fire is you get some really cool Maillard reaction from that. So when you extend your boils there, you get some really nice maltiness out of it. Um, but I mean, the biggest thing I think in traditional lager brewing is how you're using that yeast, right? And fermenting much cooler, um, pitching higher, you know, we're, um, I've fermented down at probably like five Celsius before four, 40 Fahrenheit. Um, so, you know, much cooler fermentation, obviously not under pressure, um, you know, using a spunding valve for some natural carbonation. So some of the stuff that, you know, is catching back on in the, in the craft world, um, I love experimenting with that, but, you know, like I said, also taking some more contemporary methods, um, to brewing beer. And, you know, one of those is like our, our Japanese style rice lager, um, that you're drinking right there. That's a new year round offering and we can make that at scale. Um, you know, what using exogenous enzymes, that's another thing that mm. if you're a traditional Ryan Heitzkevat brewer, you're not doing that, but I'm, I don't, I don't care at all. I'll do it. Whatever <laughs> sure, makes sure. the beer better. Sure. So. Um, so talk to me about this Japanese rice, you know, Japanese style rice lager. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the process behind this. And, uh, yeah. Where do you start? Yeah. Um, you know, we've made this for a number of years. It's been in the tap room and then it just kind of got popularity. So we, uh, we started making on the large scale and really what it is lighter and lighter and lighter lagers that, uh, that seem to be catching on. Yeah. Oh, this one's light. It's not, you know, it's not neutral or or flavorless. Like it still has you know, some flavor to it, um, even though it is very light. And, uh, you know, as these mostly empty glasses are proving like yeah. still a solid amount of lacing and, uh, you yeah. know, and head and some of the, the technical pieces are all there from what you expect out of a lager. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, this is inspired by, you know, those Japanese rice lagers like acai super dry. Yeah. So the idea is that, um, I mean, there's more flaked rice in this than malted barley. Really? Um, so it is a really, really high percentage of rice. Um, it gives it that pale color and, you know, you mentioned it's not like entirely what, what kind neutral. of percentage of rice? Uh, it's probably like 55%. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I'll get into it in a little bit, but that presents some challenges as well. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, but the flaked rice is the reason you're not just getting a really, really neutral beer. You know, if you use rice syrup or solids, or even if you were to use a cereal cooker and use rice straight up, you're going to get a very neutral beer. And we've seen that in some pilots where it's like, okay, this is fine, but it's starting to taste more like your run of the mill light lager. Right. And, um, that flaked rice adds a lot of character. Hmm. Um, um, it also is easier to use if you don't have a cereal cooker, right? You can, a flaked rice is a torrified flaked product. So you can, um, use it in like a single infusion mash. Um, and I've also noticed that it does improve foam, which was Hmm. counterintuitive to what I thought would happen with a product that has lower protein. Um, but for whatever reason, and you know, maybe I need to talk to crisp malting about this a little bit, but, uh, it does seem to improve foam stability and the structure a bit. Um, so yeah, a lot, a lot of flaked rice, um, you know, in the mashing we're using exogenous enzymes. Um, so like the glucoamylase that was big in brute IPAs that's going in, in the mash so that we can control, um, you know, the sugar spectrum we're getting out of that infusion. Um, and that allows it to dry out a lot when we ferment it. Um, and then, you know, the hops are also a big thing. This is not just using, you know, like a noble type or something like that. This is, uh, using Contessa hops, Mm. which are a new variety from Hopsteiner. Um, they were, we were using them when they were, you know, the experimental zero four one nine zero, but really like them in loggers. It's kind of cool to see hop development hop development in the u.s go towards more lager geared hops instead yeah. of just the crazy new ipa hop but i really enjoy it because it has some cool kind of green tea and like pear notes to it that mm. i think complement the rice really well um but you know fermentation is a little different when you're using s- such a high percentage of flaked rice um so you, i mentioned fan earlier um the aminos that are in this beer are much lower because we're using so much rice. So we do need to supplement that a bit or else you can get, you know, sulfur issues and, and all that. So it's, uh, you know, learning how to work with what the yeast needs and using such a high percentage of rice is, you know, a little atypical. So kind of working around those parameters. Are there certain nutrients that you, you lean on to make sure that the fermentation 
proceeds in a healthy way. And is this the same kind of pressure fermentation? Or? It is, yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's really just uh, inorganic nitrogen is really important. Mm. Um, but just getting your yeast assimilable nitrogen up to a level that it would be with a 100% malted barley beer. Um, that was one thing that we learned a lot from seltzer production is, you know, how what? luckily, luckily what? we are. Seltzer production? <laughs> There's an upside to it? Uh, well, you know, you learn like how blessed you are as a brewer to have malted barley as your sugar source because you do get that full spectrum of amino acids that you, you do not have when you're just adding sugar. So learning that helped a lot in a beer that was maybe a little deficient in yin. Um, so, yeah. Amazing to watch the uh, reverberations of <laughs> seltzer through other beer styles. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, that's interesting. When it comes to the, the hops, like how, you know, is there, I mean, again, using an IBU, these are not like, you know, the goal is not hoppiness out no. of this beer. The beer, the goal is subtle flavor and aroma. Yeah. Um, and complementary to, again, those rice flavors that you mentioned. Yeah. You know, is there a hopping rate or amount that you, you strive for that, uh, you know, that's enough, but not too much? I think it's about a pound per barrel there. Mm. So it's, it's pretty light, yeah. but you know, the, is that all Whirlpool added then too, or that's a Whirlpool as well. Okay. And we keep bitterness down on this because it's so dry. It yeah. doesn't need it as much. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just it, it'll finish out like close to it, definitely below one Play Doh. So it's, it's really? very dry. Um, but and that's primarily know. the enzyme that's driving the extra lift, uh, you know, on the fermentation there. Yeah, but we're kind of locked in. Like if you added that enzyme to a tank, it would just keep going and you're, it would go until there's no sugar left. This is only in the mash. So right. we only, you know, it's only, um, acting for a little bit of time, but it does dry it out just a little bit more. Hmm. And we don't have to worry about that enzyme remaining active into other processes. Right. Right. Um, cause it'll get denatured in the boil, but, um, yeah, just using that to kind of hone in on that dryness that we're looking for, um, nice and crisp without, you know, a ton of hot bitterness. It's just like, again, another very easy drinking beer. This is one that like as brewers, we would drink it all the time when it's 95 out and you just want something really refreshing. Right. Now, I'm going to assume that this also uses two-row barley as, uh, you know, on the other. Yeah, yeah two-row and, but rice, again, being the yeah. majority. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and do you do anything special with the water in either of these lagers? Um, in craft lager, we do not, um, other than acidification for, you know, mash pH mm -hmm. and sparge and whatnot. But, um, for this one, I believe we do kind of a balance profile. We do bump up calcium a little bit. So mm. we're kind of having a balanced, uh, chloride to sulfate ratio on this, but, um, you know, bumping up calcium a little bit, mainly for yeast health and, and clarity, cause we want a really clear beer out of this one. If you're thinking about, um, you know, some of the real difference makers when it comes to making lagers with yeast under pressure and fermenting in a cylindroconical yeah. and all of this, you know, these processes that are more common for American craft brewers, but maybe less common in, in the lager world. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you think, like, you know, what are the things that brewers out there listening should pay the most attention to in their either recipe design or technical process? I mean, it's always going to be the yeast. So, yeah. uh, you know what you can only control so much on the front end, but, you know, making sure that you, your yeast has the nutrients it has, uh, that it needs, um, you know, especially when you're using high adjunct percentages. Um, but then, you know, um, doing stuff like dumping, dumping troub off early, you know, we don't have a float tank like German lager brewers do, but making sure you're getting some of that cold break off, um, not too, too many lipids in there. But yeah, just making sure you're starting with a healthy firm there, because, you know, if you start with subpar yeast, you're, it doesn't matter what you do. Um, and always just kind of monitoring and, and tweaking to make sure that the yeast is happy for sure. Sure, sure. Well, let's uh, let's change gears and let's okay. talk about, you know, because we're here in the Lee Hill uh, Brewery and we're surrounded by wood barrels and you've spent five years on these kinds of experimental projects and uh, trying mm -hmm. to. Um, you know, brew interesting beers with solid stories that connect with consumers here. Let's talk about, uh, you know, one or two or three of your favorite projects and, uh, you know, some of those things that you started with a vision for and then, 
you know, saw to fruition as the final beers. Uh, sure. you know, what, what comes to mind initially? Well, you know, we're talking about fermentation that immediately leads to one project because it's challenging in that regard. But um, I think uh, our Grand Reserve that we released a couple years ago was a really cool project to see to fruition. Um, it's a big barrel aged beer that was aged for four years. Um, it's 21% ABV. So there had, you know, there's a lot of learning about how to make high, high gravity beer to make that happen. Um, and that started as like our, our thousandth batch. We're, you know, maybe in our 2,500, something like that now. Yeah. So it was definitely years ago and we wanted to make, you know, a big beer agent in bourbon barrels. And then we had some left over. This was kind of when I was starting over here. And it's like, well, what do we do with some of the leftover, you know, barrel aged beer? Well, let's double barrel age it, right? Like that's not anything new there, but it's like, let's age it for a long time too. That was something that was in my head. You know, I had tried, uh, you know, Tawny Port or Pedro Jimenez Sherry and some of these um, oxidized wines right. and fortified wines and like, hey, can you make something like that with beer? Um, so the Grand Reserve, yeah, aged for about four years um, in two different barrels and it's served intentionally still. So it's like, it's got all this really interesting oxidative character, but you know, to get to that high ABV without it tasting terrible, you need to learn how to coax yeast to make that much alcohol. And you know, some of that alcohol is coming from aging in a barrel for four years. Um, but a lot of it is on the front end and fermentation, you know, getting up towards 18% alcohol and I, uh, you know, I'm not a huge seltzer drinker, but I learned a ton about fermentation from making that stuff. Um, and you know, making sure that, yeah, you're getting the yeast load that you need and then providing it with additional nutrients as it starts to deplete those, um, using enzymes when we need to like, uh, that, uh, glucoamylase in barrel aged beer is actually very effective. Um, it won't dry out all the way because the yeast will, you know, be finished before it can even get there. But um, kind of that's taking, always been Avery's trick, right? Yeah, uh, with yeah. Uh, since we we're talking about Boulder right here, yeah, you know, their high ABV beers were always enzyme driven back yeah. in the day. They brew far fewer of those now, yeah, than they may have 10 years ago, yeah. But uh, um, you know, I remember they used to call it the, the liquid shorts or something like that, yep. uh, you know, yeah, it's a big secret, yeah. Um, but you, yeah, you definitely want to add that later on. I'd everyone's say. in the secret now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Grand Reserve. What's the what was the idea? You mentioned it's a barrel aged beer, yeah. but uh. Um, you know, what was the flavor goal for this and, you know, how would you describe the beer now? Not that there's some description for an 18 to 21% beer, um, that exists out there in the modern world, but is there a corollary to it? Uh, you know, this, I assume it wasn't a stout necessarily, No. um, you know, but, and so what, how did, what did you, what were you hoping to achieve in terms of flavor you ended up with and how did you then build a recipe that was going to get you to one, the ABV you needed two the flavor you needed three, um, get you through long years of aging. Um, and you know, and so that it would develop in a pleasing way and not end up being something that, uh, just couldn't make the trip. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, love that phrase, by the way, <laughs> couldn't make the trip. That comes from, uh, the Van Winkle family, you know, that's, uh, I read the book Pappy land yeah. and they talk about how some bear, you know, there's some, some bottles just don't make the trip. Yeah. Didn't make yeah. the cut. Yeah. Well, you know, like if I had to assign a style category to it, it's probably closest to a barley wine, right? Okay. You're starting with pretty. And we don't have to think strictly within those, uh, no. you know. Well, that's uh, where we depart. Yeah, so yeah. it's, you know, you think of a big multi beer, but no roast character, right? So pretty simple, you know, maybe it's so many years ago now, I think we probably use Marisotta or something like that, but you know, a pretty stout, well, not in a stout, but uh, burly uh, were there. And, you know, then we're feeding it with different sugars. So what was your initial, you know, uh, what, what gravity did you brew to? Yeah. I mean, we probably only brewed to like 20 Play-Doh. Oh, okay. And the reason for that is like, if you start to go too high there, your osmotic stress is just going to kill the yeast. So you need to start so where the it's still comfortable. same strategy that the brewery in Placentia, yeah. California, you know, has, yeah. we've written about it in the magazine and, yep. and talked about it with them too, that, uh, that brewing lower and then feeding kind of process. Yeah. So fed batch, that's what we're talking yeah. about there. We used a bunch of different sugars mainly just cause we could, but you know, like unrefined sugars like turbinado or muscovado, dark muscovado is a favorite of mine mm. for these cause it leaves a really cool 
um, note behind like kind of rummy. Um, but you know, feeding it sugar as it's going along, especially early on, giving it more oxygen to, for, for yeast cell growth. But then, you know, once you get the biomass you need cutting that off, cause we want to make alcohol and not just yeast growth. So cutting that off and then providing the nutrients it needs as you're only feeding it sugar again. Right. And it's not getting the free amino nitrogen it needs. So just kind of bumping that those, up. Those and, yeasts can also, you know, get lazy. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're giving them such easy stuff to eat. Yeah. They get happy and they just, you know, it's easy to stall out and have a lot of yeah. unfermented wort. How do you keep them working, but also happy? Well, so you get enough yeast there at yeah. a, that's, you know, vital and ready to go. Um, and how then much is en enough enough? Like a lot. Let's see. I mean, I would shoot for at least, you know, let's say 200 million cells, um, per mil per degree Plato or something like, like yeah. huge. Like we're just trying to prop up as much as we can because yeah. you're just trying to get that momentum to carry it through. And then you're giving it, um, you know, the sugar and, and yeast nutrients are super important because like without that, they're just gonna, you know, they're like, they have the sugar, but they don't have the aminos that they need um, to continue fermentation. So that's that's crucial. And then you're just kind of letting the, it go. Yeah, what's the pace of, of uh, feeding look yeah. like on that? Do you, are you watching, you know, are you measuring and feeding when it drops a certain number of, uh, uh, yeah. um, you know, Plato or, you know, is there a, a time or is there some other measure that you use for it? Yeah. You know, we're taking dailies and measuring pH yeah. and Plato every day. And when we're seeing it generally between like 10 to 12 Plato, I'll feed it again. Cause you don't want to like let it get too far gone there, but like kind of that middle ground and you just kind of keep feeding it and it takes a little more and you keep feeding it. And then you'll start to see kind of inf an inflection point. And especially if like you have an alkalizer and you're like, oh, we're getting up there. Like, you know, it's in a stressful environment. Right. There's a lot of metabolites there that the yeast is not happy with. Um, so you, you might kind of be a little more cautious with your next feeding, but like, I don't know, it's kind of weird. I always call it the like foie gras beer making cause you're just feeding it until it can't do it anymore. Um, but with, within reason, right? Like you're not going to just keep going and then it just stalls out, you know, like, okay, it's like the the fermentation um, data will tell you like it's starting to slow slow down. We're not going to force it with more sugar. It's like let's let this ride out and attenuate as far as it can um, because you know often with that uh, you know if you're measuring gravity, it's going to look really low, but there's still a lot of sugar left, right? Because there's a lot of alcohol in there. Yeah. It's less dense, so it's throwing off your your density reading a bit. But yeah, it's just kind of finding that sweet spot um, and you know knowing that you're not going to like just force it to be because we're not trying to make the highest gravity thing possible necessarily it's just knowing like you know kind of shooting for a certain spot and having some intentionality behind that and then you know the rest of the beer where it's like okay we're does it make sense to age it for four years well if you're trying to get oxidative character sure um you know we have all these sugars that we've been feeding it there's a ton of these Maillard products from these long boils we're doing on it and over time, those oxidize, you get these nice aldehyde notes that are kind of that nutty almond character, honey, um, and then that classic sherry oxidation. So you're just kind of giving it time in the barrel. Um, you know, I'm, there's some other brewers that have experimented with more of like a macro oxidation method, sure. um, like is popular in Madeira. We were just kind of like, you know, this is so high in ABV, it's not going to spoil um, what's funny is like, we could, you know, run PCR on the barrels and be like, there is stuff in here, but it did not survive and it was not able to ferment anything. Um, so you're just kind of letting it hang out and, and age through the seasons in Colorado. You know, it's so arid here. Um, you see a, quite a bit of ABV increase over time because it just, just evaporates off. Yeah. Even through the, through the barrel. Yeah. And so just giving it that time to just oxidize and develop and become this cool thing. Um, you know, that's why I wanted to serve it still is that it was mm -hmm. just very akin to that, like tawny port. Um, and just having that kind of like caramelized stone fruit, you know, dried fruit with that almond honey note. Um, just something that you would, you know, sip a little bit at, after dinner as a dessert or something like that. Right. What other, uh, you know, you mentioned probably a base of Maris Otter, but what other, uh, layered, malts you know mm -hmm. do you throw in there um you know uh, for b character and mm -hmm. uh you know and some of those additional levels of, of uh, depth and interest i mean honestly if you're going for 
above 20%, you want to keep the specialty malt to a minimum, okay. especially roasted malt, because that's only going to affect your yeast. Yeah. Um, and you'll get a ton of character from, especially if you're feeding it under fine sugars. And then the barrels are really important. Like mm. I think barrel choice is also um, paramount there. But, you know, if you're going a little lower, the classics, you know, like yeah. um, I really like uh, DRC um, is like a double roasted caramel malt. Um, you know, just some, some things there, but honestly, you keep it really simple yeah. on these high gravity ones. Cause like I mentioned with that sugar you're adding, um, you get a ton of character there. It's weird. That's what I'm saying. It's right. not like a normal beer. It's like there's malt to start, but then you're feeding it sugar and you're like barrel aging it forever. And you're really boosting this high alcohol product. And it's, uh, it's something kind of unique and, and it comes off. I, we always called it like barley port because it's just like, yeah, I guess sure, it's sure. beer. Like it kind of tastes like some of our other barrel aged beers, but it's got something very unique to it. Interesting. And so what what do you ferment with? Um, that has changed over time. But, uh, you know, there's some classic strains for high gravity and we typically don't use those. So really, um, there's some diastaticus positive strains like these. Um, I forget the Saison strain that yep. a lot of people use. Yeah. I know River North has used those and they, they make great stuff at high yeah. ABV. Um, but like for the Grand Reserve, it was just like a classic Abbey Belgian strain, actually, mm -hmm. which was really weird because, you know, when the beer was young, it had the Belgian character to it. And it kind of had this bananas foster vibe, right? Because it, it had the esters and then that kind of caramely. But over time, the esters faded away mm. and you don't really get that as much anymore. A lot of the big stouts and stuff that we do, doing more like a dry English strain. So I think yeast strain is important. You need something that's ethanol tolerant, but it's there's no, you know, I, I think as long as you can treat it right, um, you can get pretty, you know, robust beers with a number of different strains interesting yeah interesting anything to kind of you know temperature and process on that i mean we talked about timing and that's just really a measure you know just just measuring it um is there a temperature range where you're going to keep it happy and uh yeah. not overstressed yeah you definitely want to start cooler because yeah. if you if you start really warm you're getting more of those fusel alcohols that right. harsh note um, I definitely would let it warm up towards the end of fermentation. That helps it kind of attenuate and finish out. Um, but yeah, if you can keep it cooler, I think we probably start around 18 Celsius. That's, you know, mid sixties or something like that. Um, and then let it kind of free rise towards the end, maybe after you're done feeding to just finish out. But you definitely want to start a bit low because otherwise, you know, depending on the yeast strain you have, you might get more esters than you want. I mean, this is all redox balance fermentation stuff. So you just want to keep it tame and try to keep things kind of keep, keep it tight, but, you know, let it do its thing. Yeah. How do you manage, you know, now, the, of course, a fraction of this went into barrels, you said, for four years. Yeah. That's a long ass time. It is. In some barrels. Yeah. We're sitting here. It's the middle of the summer. Mm -hmm. It's pretty warm in here. It you is. know, it's 90 something, probably 95 degree high out, right, yeah. you know, today. Um, you know, and this is not a temperature controlled barrel, barrel room. And, yep. uh, you know, on the flip side in the middle of winter, this is going to be relatively cold back here. I've just got heaters in here, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's not necessarily, it's not uh, kept to one consistent temperature or anything. There's definitely some swings, potentially some wide swings in temperature over the seasons. Yeah. Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you manage that oxidation, you know, that expansion and contraction of liquid in and out of the wood? over those seasons as those temperatures change you know do you top up barrels do you take any other, other any other strategies uh you know to try to you know massage the way that these oxidize mm -hmm. yeah i mean with most of our like barrel aged stouts or a normal kind of level that's maybe not 20 percent. that's a huge thing like you know you don't want we don't leave it in there nearly that long maybe six months to a year yeah um, because we get you know it's so arid here you get a lot of action through the wood but these beers that are designed to be super high ABV there, they can take on a lot of the tannins, you know, the polyphenols from the, from the Oak. So we kind of want that. It's like, uh, you know, the rack houses in Kentucky They're you know, they get very cold in the winter and very hot in the summer. So we want a lot of that expansion and contraction to extract all that flavor from the wood. Um, so it's kind of nice to do these huge beers cause you're not as concerned about that. And then topping up, we don't want to do because yeah. We want more, you know, as it evaporates, we're going to get more surface area on, you know, the top of the liquid there for oxidation. And we're, 
we're trying to oxidize it, but like, you know, it's still pretty slow, right? It's not like bubbling O2 through the beer, um, which is another, you know, great strategy, yeah. but it's different. So we're just kind of letting it do its thing. You're obviously losing quite a bit of angel share there, but you know, when you're just trying to do a small volume of something that's really cool, um, that, you know, that's how we let it go. And, you know, we, you definitely see quite a bit of loss over that time, but how much, how much loss out of a barrel on a percentage kind of basis? I mean, the lowest barrel I saw maybe was like 60%. Full. Wow. Yeah. So wow. It, it, I mean, but that's condensed down that's intense flavor there. Yeah. Um, so it's like, yeah, we lost it, but that's how you make that, <laughs> um, without, you know, that's how you're concentrating it down. Um, but yeah. 21%. So no, you know, didn't end up with any sour barrels out of those. No, <laughs> no, no, not yeah, at all. Yeah. Cool. All right, is there another, uh, another project in addition to the grand reserve that, uh, um, that you found you really learned things through the process of making it? Yeah. You know, kind of on the other side, but still barrel aging is our, um, open space terroir project that we released in June of this year. And that was something that I started again, four years ago. Um, it, you know, just kind of experimentation, like, all right, what's going to happen here. So getting really obviously very inspired by Lambic brewing and goose from Belgium, um, not having a cool ship here. So we couldn't make traditional spontaneous beer, but wanting to kind of replicate a process that would capture some of that locality of where we are. Um, and I remember reading on Jester King's blog years ago about how they had kind of captured some microbes from plants that were around them. And it's like, well, maybe we can try that. And this is just like a one-off project kind of thing. Like we'll, we'll see what happens. So basically just went around the brewery and, and forged some plants and made a little five gallon starter. And within a week it was fermenting. And then it's like, well, okay, like maybe we can make a beer with this starter. So then you're kind of, you know, taking uh, a page out of the Lambic Brewers book. You're making as dexterous a word as possible with unmalted wheat, you know, 60% unmalted wheat and 40% malted barley using the aged hops. So kind of replicating that wort profile and then knocking it out into steamed neutral oak barrels and inoculating it with that starter that you made weeks prior. So, you know, I call that, um, wild inoculation or something, you know, it's, it's not spontaneous, but it's not using a pure culture of any form. Like some of the mixed culture stuff we have in our fruiters here. Right. Um, and then just so, kind of seeing how uh, that goes. When, uh, so on this, like how, how long of a process did it, that take? Because I, you know, if, if I'm thinking about it from a brewery perspective, I'm not going to brew a 10 barrel batch of a crazy dexterous wart, and then just hope that this thing that does appear to be fermenting will actually ferment all of that. You know, there has to be more of an evaluation process, sure. you know, and therefore you had to, you know, start with a wart that you know, and then be able to see how that's do, you know, what, what that culture is then now going to do to that. And does that produce pleasant aromas and flavors? Does that produce unpleasant is it producing things we don't want at all you know in a, in a fermentation process because yeah. all of those are potential outcomes and you you know before you go risk the time and expense of, of making a big batch i mean it's it starts as a passion project in the unknown honestly like you know i was very fortunate lee hill is sort of our playground it's yeah. the test ground so it's like you know matt cutter founder is like you know if you're not dumping beer you're not trying trying hard enough so it's like let's try some weird stuff no one really knew that this was going on except for a few people, but it's like that first year, you know, yeah. we have a seven barrel system that'll fill about four oak barrels and it's like, okay, the, the barrels are fermenting. I'm seeing a primary fermentation. It smells kind of like a wild wit beer or something. It, mm -hmm. you know, it's got that spicy phenol character. We'll see how that ages. And then, you know, the following spring, I was doing this all in the spring. It's like, oh, those are kind of coming along okay, well, let's make another one. And, you know, in the tradition of goose, you have multiple years that you're blending together. So it's like, let's do another round of that. And, and knowing that not all of them will be good. So sure. you do need a decent amount of stock because, you know, you, you look at each barrel, it's its own fermentation. And, you know, once I had three years of that, then I had all these different qualities that were, you know, pretty cool. And, and some of them, it was very apparent right off the bat. It's like, 
this either A, isn't ready or B, I'm, I'm going to dump this. this is not good. And you hear that a lot from spontaneous fermentation, except for maybe the people that are really good at it, um, that, yeah, you're not going to get all good uh, winners out of that. And and then you're just blending for the qualities that you like in each barrel and, and bottling it and letting it condition for another year. And, you know, and then you have your finished product that I think turned out great. And so it kind of started with, you know, curiosity. I think that's a big thing in brewing is like leaning into your curiosity and trying to learn something new, try something new. And then just seeing how things turn out. And, you know, I'm fortunate to have people that were backing that up. For sure. For sure. Um, let's uh, let's zoom out a little bit okay. here, you know, as we come to the end. You know, you've been in it now 10 years with Upslope. Um, it's been the entirety of your brewing career. You've gotten to play a lot. Now you're, you know, maybe in a more disciplined role as, as head brewer. You know, within your career, what do you want to achieve next? And uh, what is on the near term and long term horizon for Upslope? Man, that's a tough one. But, you know, like I think you're seeing it right. I'm now in a more of a role that's a bit more disciplined or, you know, I'm looking at different things than I was when I'm playing around here. Um, but, you know, I, I do think it kind of I'm leaning back on my background, you know, in engineering and inefficiencies. And that's fun, right? Like making things better and um, more efficient on a brewing scale, but also just like cost effectiveness, you know, like it's, it's a sure, tough market sure. out there now. We're very saturated. Um, but so it's very important to continue to innovate. So it's like, we can stick to our guns, but you know, with over 9,000 breweries out there, you got to keep coming up with something new. Um, and so I think that's always a fun challenge. But innovation, quality and efficiency all working, uh, you know, in this yep. kind of concert becomes then, the magical space. It's not just yeah. one of those. You kind of have to work on yep. all three of those. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know necessarily what the future for me or Upslope is and what where that needs to go. Um, I do think that, you know, right now there's a bit of a leveling off in the industry and it's, it's pretty tough out there, to be honest. There's a lot of breweries that are having to make some tough calls, but I think, you know, being able to um, be thrifty and kind of figure out how to make things work and, and, like I said, continuing to come up with new stuff that people want to try is, is great. And, and a lot of that is just sticking to, you know, what you're passionate about. Cause you can tell, I, th I think you mentioned earlier, it's like, you can tell when someone's passionate about something rather than just like, Hey, we're putting this out there. Cause we think we should, um, you know, that was a big move for like the push to our international lager series that we have now. I was like, you know, all of us brewers like making these and drinking these. And I think that people are kind of catching on to that. So we made a big push in that direction and we're seeing, you know, positive reception there. So I'm hoping that there's, you know, beer has a lot of staying power. You know, we've mentioned seltzer. Um, it had a big, you know, popular moment there, but I, I don't know if it'll be around like craft beer does, you know, we've got, <laughs> sure, we've sure. got the culture behind it, the history, you know, beer, I think will weather the storm and, and we'll be there with it. So yeah, it's, it's tough to know, but just kind of, Staying true to what you like to do, I think, is super important. I think you're right, and I think you can uh, you can certainly taste the passion in the beers that uh, the brewers make when they're making those things that they really care yeah. about. Yep. And that's a great place to bring it to a close. GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24-7 service and support. Gambrinus Malting combines European-influenced malting practices with the finest barley, wheat, and rye. Try Old Orchard's flavored craft juice concentrate blends in your next craft beverage. AccuBrew helps you detect problems before they ruin a batch. ProBrew has rotary can fillers in stock with a two to four week lead time. RMS Roller Grinder Mills unlock the full potential of your grain. Omega's thialized yeasts bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. Go green with multi-pack candles from Robert's Polypro. And ABS Commercial is your full service brewery outfitter. If you've enjoyed this podcast and any others, Go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, and become a subscriber to Craft Beer and Brewing. Um, you know, we're getting into our best in beer season, and so if you're a member of our email list, uh, and if you're not, you should go sign up on beerandbrewing.com. Um, you know, we will send out to that email list a link for voting in our best in beer 
over this next week. We hope you all go and vote. Let your reader, listener uh, voices be heard and uh, tell us what your favorite breweries, beers, styles, and whatnot were from 2023. Get out there and do it. Uh, we want to see what you all think. Uh, Alex, if people want to learn more about Upslope, where do they find you all? Yeah, you can go to our website, upslopebrewing.com or, you know, any of the social um, network, you know, areas like uh, Twitter and uh, especially Instagram at Upslope. You can find it pretty easy. Fantastic. Well, thanks for talking to me about uh, lager brewing, high gravity brewing and all of these things. It's been fun to get back here to this Lee Hill Brewery uh, back, uh, you know, and harken back to my early days of craft beer and brewing. Cheers. Thanks for having me on, man. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.